I'm Natasha, and I'm Red. And together we are Syllogism, a science, culture, and philosophy challenge podcast on the edge of chaos. This season, we'll invite guests of varying expertise to playfully investigate Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. Each episode will explore a particular type of intelligence according to Gardner. This week's challenge was to write a 500-word essay describing verbal intelligence. And to explore this concept of linguistic intelligence, we invited a 24-year-old hyper-polyglot gigachad known as Language Simp to talk about words. Our guest simps for over 50 languages on his YouTube and TikTok channels, where he's amassed nearly 2 million viewers and probably double the number of haters. For more about our guest and additional resources, check out our newsletter at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter. Enjoy! Look at my linguistic intelligence. La, 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 la. You are the worst. Uh, I am fun. So, yeah, true, 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 mm-hmm. true. Hello. <laughs> Typically, when I'm like choosing a guest, I'll watch like a little bit of their stuff, and I'm like, "Yep." Like, I just know, like, mm. that's the one. I don't know how they're gonna act on the show, but I just saw your shit. And I was like, "Uh huh." That's the yeah, guy. Yeah, it's, it's it's definitely a unique what I do to to say the least. Probably not very similar to other guests that you've had in the past, but uh, and I really don't know anything about linguistics to be completely honest. So if we dive into that, I'm completely lost. I don't know yeah. anything. But that gives me a unique point of view, I think. Yeah, well, and that'll actually be a fascinating thing to see that someone who is so facile with language doesn't even think about linguistics as a thing. It's kind of like a virtuoso picks up an instrument, begins playing in a way that you would think would take years of practice, but they're native, but they couldn't tell you how they got there. Yeah, I mean, actually, funny enough, I started with instruments before languages. I like, I was always interested in just learning a bunch of different things. And so I started with instruments and I started learning, you know, guitar, then going to bass, then banjo and every every stringed instrument and stuff. And it's the same way. Like, I never cared about music theory or never had any idea what I was doing, but just knew that it worked and sounded good. I have a meme page, but having a YouTube channel where you make skits all the time, it's so much different because I can kind of hide behind the meme. I don't have to like put myself Mm -hmm. or my face into it. You are literally putting your fucking face out on TikTok (laughs) all the time. And then you were like, oh, I don't tell people my name. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely don't tell people my name. Uh, Not really for any I guess just my safety. I definitely say provocative things very often, so I guess sometimes I piss off certain groups of people, so I try to be a little more anonymous. I tell people my name is language, which is, uh, I think, suiting. Mm. Then you do belong on the show because we say things that aggravate people sometimes. Perfect. <laughs> That's fine. Good with Not me. Not me, just Brett. Just me. I am the more <laughs> aggravating of the two of us. Oftentimes I have to play like the milk toast character on this show because I, I catch all the fallout from all the extra Brett that's there. What's well, a good balance then? It's a perfect yin and yang. So our challenge this week, we're going to jump right into it now. Like oh, this Jesus is like, Christ. we've been getting... You've been dropping the challenge earlier. I know. Much, I'm surprised we didn't do it before the show. Well, <laughs> well, I dropped the challenge when it feels appropriate. I feel like we should just dive right into the fucking challenge. So for context, I think I told you we've been exploring the concept of Howard Gardner's multiple intelligence. Mm-hmm. I'm lightly familiar. <laughs> it's kind of silly, and we're having a really good time just kind of playing with the ideas. So the concept of verbal intelligence or like linguistic intelligence or whatever, you can obviously measure that and proficiency in language and context cues and that kind of shit. But old Howie seems to think there's something special 
that we're not quite capturing, I think, in verbal intelligence entirely. It's apart from G, I think. I'm putting words in his mouth, hmm. but I do believe that's kind of what his overarching theme is. I, I think in ordinary intelligence testing, among the things you're looking at pretty closely is your verbal fluency and so forth. Uh, play with language, your ability to analogize is really important. I think what he's saying isn't so much that language isn't the thing, but he's saying language is a component of a multifaceted group of other things that we need to explore is something in a pantheon. It's not like at the top, something of that sort. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Like you can't test for the shit that Howard Gardner is saying exists. And that's kind of like the hallmark of it. If you test for it, it like disappears like into yeah. fairy dust yeah. or something. So that being said, I thought learning languages is one form of that, right? But what you do is more than just learning languages. You take your love of learning languages, it's very meta, and then you put it out there on the internet and communicate it in a way that probably makes other people want to learn languages that don't, like, I mean, I'm curious, what's your audience type? Are they polyglots? Are they language learners? Are they just fucking idiots? What, like? <laughs> I would never call my audience fucking idiots. No, I'm not, no. I'm, I'm not offended, but it seems like you're actually the rowdy one and he's the one that needs to keep you in check then. But, um, you know, it's, it's a good mix. I mean, you've definitely got the seasoned language learners that I see kind of overlap audiences with other polyglots on YouTube, people who make language content. But then there is definitely a demographic that I reach that isn't really interested in languages because I'm just saying provocative things about their language or whatnot. So it's definitely an interesting blend. And I have gotten a lot of people into language learning, which surprises me, actually, because I feel like my content is more provocative and comedy based. And then when people come to me and say, oh, my goodness, language simp, I'm learning German because of you. Um, I, I get confused, honestly. I don't expect it. So it's definitely a mixture. I mean, I've got a lot of haters. I've got a lot of supporters. And most of it are just people passing by who see me talking about their language, I think. That's exactly what I thought. Because I have an international group that I talk to, like, every Friday. And two of them are polyglots. They're linguists. They're into this kind of stuff. And... I said, have you ever heard of language simp? And one of them was like, oh, yeah, he's hilarious. And the other one was like, no. And I think there's like two types of linguists. There's the vast majority, which I feel like are very woke. And then there's another type that's like truly just into the language. And it's not as much about, I think, the culture aspect. I don't know. What do you... Yeah, I think that um, there's definitely that division, like there's people who are super interested in linguistics and who dissect everything and get really into the technicalities of it, and they're the ones who get more offended by stuff. And then there's people like me who just like the actual application of it. Like, I don't care if I'm conjugating a verb wrong, it's not the end of the world, and I'm just having fun with it. And I like the actual product of being able to go use the language rather than getting into the technicalities. Right. I've witnessed the exact same thing in these people. And so when I was looking for guests, the vast majority of people I found were like the pronoun fucking police. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck. They won't, first of all, they won't want to come on the show. Like, I don't care. Well, I'll talk to them. But they won't want to come on the show. So so just so that I understand what you're saying, though, when you say pronoun police, are you saying, what are you exactly saying? Like, what are you not supporting? Or I'm saying that the vast majority of like the linguists that I looked at having on the show I don't think they would think what you do is funny. I, I guess I'm just trying to get the specific of pronoun police and whatnot, because I'm, I'm just trying to understand what, what angle you're going at this. Like, yeah, there are a lot of linguists who don't find me funny, but I'm just curious uh, 
because like pronoun that sounds political in, in a sense i'm just yeah. like i'm trying to understand if that's what you're talking about or like... i mean people who think using like neo pronouns is like a very serious thing i don't consider myself very concerned about it because like i'll call you whatever the fuck pronoun you want mm-hmm. you know but i feel like people make it their whole personality mm-hmm. i've really honestly never ran into that i mean i see people who you know use like they them and things like that which i don't have a problem with or other equivalents in other different languages i honestly like i've heard the rhetoric a little about it but i personally have never even encountered anyone who uses neo pronouns one of the things that might be happening like english let's say as a language has in a lot of ways divested itself from a lot of the formalism you might see in let's say japanese where uh, almost every interaction you're involved with involves some kind of acknowledgement of who the person is before you and what your relative social relationship is and so there's a sense of respect and deference to tradition and hierarchy that English itself really doesn't have very much of, although a lot of it is implicit. I wouldn't necessarily go out of my way to change the structure of a word I say in order to communicate that I'm talking to my second removed aunt and I'm using this particular tone because I want her to know that I am being deferential. And so I think to myself, okay, well, what is going on with some of the the neo-pronouns? And it seems to me that it might be a kind of re-inclusion perhaps of something like that in order to bring about a respect that would have been in a social structure that has been lost in the English language for some time. The irony, because the very thing they're trying to escape is hierarchy and structure, but yet they want you to pay deference to this kind of a thing. Where I thought you were going to go with this, Brett, was the people who think there is a rigidity to language and that there should be and that the structure should stay. And then there are people like, fuck it, let the structure be fluid. And I think the people who say, fuck it, let the, let the structure be fluid, are what I call the pronoun police or whatever. I think those are the people who don't want to talk about language unless it's in the context of like anti-capitalism and what's happening in the world. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, it's like they're breaking a dam in order to construct a new dam. But the problem is the broken dam was holding back a flood of other things that maybe they weren't aware of. This is why I think it'll work on a small scale. Like you were saying, you'll use whatever pronouns, but, uh, you know, on large scale, forcing something to happen breaks a dam that's holding back uh, a flood. I'm just saying, I feel like the vast majority of people that I looked into asking, I was like, no, they wouldn't come on the show. They would hate us. They would hate what we talk about. They would hate our opinions. Yeah, it makes sense, but it's fun to push back. I guess if they hate it, they should come on and talk to you about it then. But there's people that disagree and they want to push back and forth. And then there's people who are like, fuck you, I won't even give you a platform. I've reached out to some of those people and they're like, no, they'll classify you instantly. The irony of that. You and I had a conversation where there was Will Roosh and he was on a, a program where they were talking about various kinds of language and beliefs and... One of the people on on the panel just said, I was told you were coming here to listen to me and that's it. You can't ask questions. None of your positions are going to make any sense. I am refusing to have a a dialogue whatsoever. I am here to give a monologue and you will receive it as if it's gospel. And by the way, here's a tablet with the Ten Commandments on it or something like that. I can think of nothing more rigid. And I think one of the beauties of the English language is how remarkably fluid it is. I mean, we absorb and adapt to things from everywhere. I think I've said this somewhere before. It is what Esperanto aspired, I think, to be because it does nothing but allow the floodgates to be open and other languages can be found almost everywhere. And I can borrow words, I can make up words, and many of them wind up in our dictionaries. 
And this is in contradistinction to, let's say, French, where I, I believe they control what is allowed to become a French word in such a way that they're trying to preserve what little chunk of their history they have. Yeah, they, they certainly do that, but it doesn't really work. I actually went to the French Academy, Académie Française, I'm not 100% sure, but um, I was at that building in France and... I mean, yeah, they try to do that, but no one listens to them. Like, everyone still uses the words, including me, that aren't actually French. So I don't think having, like, a structured body like that really makes a difference. Like, who cares what's in the dictionary in 2022? There's an urban dictionary, and uh, I probably use more of those words than I do actual English words. No <laughs> shit, you make up your own words, dude. I am an inveterate neologist, and I believe that is a display of some kind of pathology that should have me uh, in a straitjacket. But instead, we've given you a microphone. You gave me a microphone, and people can see me do this shit in real time. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I completely agree with you about the French thing. I think one of my friend who said he knows of you mm -hmm. uh, was talking to us about this body that governs language in France, and he was talking about how they're trying to make the official profession of gaming or Twitch streaming sound more professional. And they've created this phrase to describe these gamers, you know, joyeux professionnel. I don't know, remember, remember what it was. Instead of just like streamer, because they're like, no, it needs to sound better. It needs to be more, you know. Yeah, it's funny. I've noticed too, in France, they have the body that actually tries to govern the speech, but then they have the actual citizens use whatever speech they want. They use a lot of words from the American language, which is what I call, you guys call English, but the American language, they, they use all our words and they don't care. But then in Quebec, they like actually invent new words and it actually does get adopted, which I think is really interesting because oh, they're awesome. not even like the original French speaking country. So I think that's because they are America adjacent. <laughs> and, and so there, so maybe some of our linguistic porosity is allowing some of that to flow into uh, French over there. Yeah, it's crazy. The words that they'll invent, it makes no sense. But then also France is right next to England, so... Shouldn't really be that much of a difference. I don't know. But they're at war. So the French being perennially pissed off at the success of the British are always going to push back against the successes and do the exact opposite. It's almost like you had a bad relationship in childhood and then you pick up the opposite of the bad parenting habits. I think that's what's going on. Oh, uh, yeah. So, makes so, sense. So English, so English is your daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning Hindi right now, and I'm seeing that with uh, Pakistan and India, certainly diving into the cultures and the linguistic peculiarities between the language Urdu and Hindi. That's that's also kind of wild how they use each other's words and then sometimes don't for certain reasons. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's the most interesting part of learning a language is not necessarily being able to speak it, but kind of understanding more about the cultures and where they originate from. I don't know. There's a special thing about people who like to learn languages. Like, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with us. And I don't consider myself like a polyglot, but I, if I had like an infinite lifetime, I would definitely study more languages. Yeah, it's a certain type of person. I don't know what it is, though. I haven't really found the unique identifier. I guess an interest in the world and geography is almost like the gateway drug, I think. Like, I was just looking at maps and saying like, oh, wow, there's all these countries. Oh, they speak different languages, too. But... I haven't found that because I found people of all different types of backgrounds and interests and stuff who learn languages. So I don't know what the glue is, really. I think part of it is just a love of learning in general, because with languages, there's like an almost an infinite amount of things you can do with learning mm -hmm. how to communicate and that kind of thing. And it's different than learning math because math feels less useful in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You can't use it to interact with other people, whereas languages, the entire point of learning it is to interact with other people. 
Yeah, and actually my favorite way to interact with people, which is how I learned languages for years before YouTube or anything, was uh, trolling people, just uh, screwing with people. And like my, fav my favorite thing, like uh, just going into French Discord servers and saying like, Qui vous a sauvé la vie pendant la Seconde Guerre mondiale? Who saved your life during the Second World War? With a really shitty American accent. And then they start saying like, oh, we helped you with your independence. And I'm like, no, you suck. And then my favorite phrase too is like, Qui a le meilleur pays du monde? Who has the best GDP in the world? And stuff like that. And then they, and they start talking shit about like American like crime and stuff. I say, on n'a pas de criminal, on n'a pas de violence. We have, we don't have problems. We don't have violence, stuff like that. So, and then that way you really get them to speak. Cause when people start learning languages, they hop online, they start speaking to people. They say, hello, how are you? Uh, I am learning French. Uh, but I'm like, no, who has the best GDP? <laughs> I think you've got onto something there that might be a universal trick for people. And that is typically when someone learns something about a new language, the first thing you word is a fucking curse word. And there's a reason for that. It's because there's something about it that sticks. It makes you feel like you're a part of something that isn't just so formal. And it allows you to be playful, which is, I think, mm -hmm. one of the things we do to communicate socially is to be able to play with each other. And so I think fucking with people is roughly the equivalent of learning the curse words and then being able to see what comes back at you. And then you need to learn to understand what they're saying back to you. And you get typical replies where they start bringing up the problems in the U.S. and stuff. I just experienced the same thing, though. Three days ago started Hindi. One of the first things I learned, Tu mother chodhu, which is, uh, you are a motherfucker. And I've said it to, like, five people from Pakistan and, like, ten people from India on Discord. Every single one of them erupted into laughter. So, like, instantly there's that connection. Instantly they want to help me. They want to speak it. Right. Because I, I have a really shitty accent, too. Like, I sound like an American. They've never heard that before. They've never heard a, an American call someone a motherfucker with a shitty accent. Right. And so right yeah. when you get pulled into a cultural context that it just isn't, you know, where is it okay for me to take a leak? I would like a glass of water. Really? How interesting is that? Well, it almost isn't at all. This is a perfect segue into the challenge because I was writing about this exact thing. And I was thinking about swearing and I was thinking about context and all these things. And most people think language about the words. And, you know, when I first started thinking about linguistics, I'm like, what the fuck? None of these linguists that I've seen talk about words. They're talking more about the culture and the context and the origin. It's really weird what we consider a word cell. So <laughs> I'll go ahead and read mine. We're going to be really awkward and oh, read okay. our shit. Tickle my uvula a little bit before mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? My throat is like fucked for sure. And for like three days. Yesterday I did the 10 hour stream where I just recited katakana for 10 hours straight. So my throat is kind of fried as well. Wow. Oh, that's perfect. Okay. Um, I just want to say that you sound very masculine today with your raspy voice. Thank you, baby. Thank you. So, first of all, I just want to say that I am within the 500 words. It was supposed to be an essay that was 500 words. <laughs> and yeah, so that's all I want to say. Any other people who are not within 500 words are immediately disqualified from this challenge. But, all right. So, so we're supposed to write about what is linguistic intelligence. So being verbally intelligent is about how well you can maneuver inside various frameworks. A true word cell is far more into the shit behind the words than the words themselves. They pay closer attention to the context of the language and audience. They are goal-directed, they're concise, they're adept at leveraging emotion, and can adapt in an instant. Linguistics isn't about words, but what surrounds them. Context is king. Our buddy language simp knows he's talking to people who are fluent in internet speak. They're irony-pilled Sigma Giga Chads, and 
language limp is a mirror. She talks about speaking Ruski in the majority of his videos and mocks the standard YouTuber, understanding that the terminally online non-Wokies hate thinking of themselves as average consumers, even though they are. <laughs> a clear a clear visualization of who your words are meant to reach is requisite to ensuring that the other components of your verbal intelligence aren't wasted on an audience that doesn't fucking get you. Word cells are hashtag goals. Verbally intelligent motherfuckers. We're verbally intelligent people get what they want because they can articulate it. If language simp's goal is to keep learning languages and making videos, he's nailed it. He understands that controversy creates engagement, engagement increases views, views increase dollars, and dollars buy time that he can use to do whatever the fuck he wants. A verbal midwit might have an innate propensity for language and the general intelligence to acquire the proper mechanics of speech. Shit, they might even have the courage to use colloquialisms and dysphemisms with intent, but without a clear understanding of what they hope to achieve, well, they are shit out of luck. Concision is key. No matter who your audience is or what your goals are, you are speaking to people who have a shrinking attention span. The object of the game is to say what you gotta say, make it punchy, melodic, salient, and precise, then get the fuck out of people's faces so you can linger in their mind. Leveraging emotion through stories. I've been with my husband since we were 12, and he's always loved to tell stories and make comics. His stories provoke disgust, suspense, awe, joy, and sometimes indignation. You'd think after all this time I'd have heard them all, but he tells stories with such enthusiasm and conviction that I forget I've heard them a thousand times. I feel his genuine emotions when he tells the story and his humor is impeccable. I'll never forget the one about how his bestie stuck his hand in human excrement while they were dumpster diving. That shit lingers. <laughs> Adaptation is for the evolved. It's not enough to provoke emotion. A verbally intelligent person adapts instantly to their own words. They zig and zag through emotion, context, and concision on the path to their goal. They can look back to understand where they've been while keeping an eye on the path ahead, juggling the past, present, and future with captivating skill. Skilled word cells are also word rotators, context developers, and emotion provokers. Verbal intelligence isn't really about the words, but how you use them. Switch. I want to I want to lobby for getting the word motherfucker in the body of the text because um, I, I to me that was poignant. <laughs> Verbally intelligent motherfuckers is what I shouldn't say, but anyway, the point is I think it's not about how verbose you are or how big your vocabulary is or how many fucking languages you can speak. It's like can you get the shit across that you're trying to get across or not? Nah? Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think, as you just said, though, like, it's not about knowing all the all the words and stuff and whatnot. Um, for me, I purposefully ignore when I'm learning languages a lot of stuff. Like, if I'm talking with someone and they're teaching me stuff and I want to clarify, like, how do you say it is beautiful? And then they start telling me all these synonyms for beautiful that are better and more extravagant. I might say, like, no, I don't want to focus on that. I don't need that word. I just need to know beautiful. Maybe I can have passive understanding of the other stuff. But that happens all the time, especially at the start of a language like Hindi right now. I'm just asking someone, how do I say she is beautiful? This happened yesterday. And they tell me the word, but then they go on a tangent about how I could learn all these different forms, mm -hmm. add more words to the sentence to make it more extravagant. And I'm like, no, 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 this is day three. I don't need that. I want to be able to tell someone, well, that sounds kind of weird. I'm not like going and flirting with Indian women on day three, but I just mean like. Is that day four? I just want to see when, uh, when is the appropriate. Give it like a week or two. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We, we two get it. 
Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> lo- lo- love me some uh, Indian hotties for sure. I mean, there's there's kind of hotties all around the planet, to be honest. It's definitely a plus of learning languages. Like, I can't lie. Obviously, yeah. that helps. This is like a total tangent, but I just have to say it since we're on it. The fact that I've learned so many languages, or at least have passive knowledge of plenty of languages, my friend life and, and stuff, like, I'm just able to make connections with people so quick, it's insane. Pretty much any language on the planet, if someone says they're from somewhere, I probably know something in that language or a little bit about it. Like, when I had a job, when I was an engineer, just like everyone in the office, I had a connection with everybody from every country, and it was amazing. Well, I think it's also about what you say rather than, like, the language you say it into, because... If you go in with the shit about, you know, who has the best GDP, it's a litmus test immediately to be like, do you have a fucking sense of humor or not? And if you don't, it's like, be I, gone. Have, I have no need to talk to you. You might be an imbecile. Even if you can speak a language, you have no humor. Yeah, exactly. Like when I met some Swedish people, the first thing I say, I think that Denmark is better than Sweden, like instantly. And if I meet a Danish person... And then I say the opposite. I think Sweden is better than Denmark and just start a debate and instantly friends. So I know what you're doing. This is a pickup artist thing. You're, you're doing like, you're nagging, basically. You're giving them the little nudge that says, I'm going to critique you, let you know my balls are this big by doing so. And therefore, you're going to love me, even though I'm insulting you. Exactly. Yeah, I never thought of it as a pickup artist thing, but I guess it makes sense. in the Definitely a different brand of pickup artist. So. The way your brain works, like Im- immediately malignant, you immediately assign like this malice, you know. Well, uh, I'm just, I'm just doing humor. That's, that's not malice. What is it? Hanlon's razor never attribute that to malice, which can be attributed to stupidity. Uh, yes. Well, well, apparently he was using the wrong razor. <laughs> I think so. I'm like kind of scared right now, to be honest. It's like, damn, be so scared. fucking deviant. scared. Scared me. Okay, so I'm I'm like sitting here and I'm like, all right, I think we need to hear Brett's just to compare and contrast now. So there's some interesting things that you said that are along the lines of things that you'll hear me say. Different, of course, because of course it, it, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't be uh, me if it wasn't different. I don't know if I'm going to understand yours. You use some big words, my friend. I did speech to text on my little note app, and I'm like, I want to say this. I want to say this. And then I'm like, and then it became a bunch of vignettes. And I'm like, how do I string this all together? Uh, Because there was like 30 ideas and I really could only express so many of them. And so, uh, well, sounds like a midwit to me. I am midwit as fuck. But as you'll see from the very words I am about to read for our loving audience, there's a reason for it. Okay. Okay. Let me moisten my, uh, my sore throat. This is already incredibly intense, I can tell from the first sentence. I know what myelinated nerves are, though, because I studied neuroengineering. (laughs) I already can tell from a quick glance that I'm lost. We'll see, though. Me too. It's going to be fun. So, subtle impulses of selfhood traverse myriad miles of myelinated nerves networked to microscopic synaptic junctions, electrochemically exploding effusively along the tracery of prefabricated geometric clusters that recount and recapitulate and yet burn the self and the world anew, all the while yearning to leap from mouth to ear to touch the mind of another, to belong, to resonate, to create the crucible, the connectomic cradle of civilization. Linguistic... (laughs) I understood that paragraph. You're not helping me. You're not helping me. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, um, that's paragraph one. That might even be sentence one. Um, (laughs) Stanza one. Okay, look. And now on to part two, uh, where I break it down in bars. 
Linguistic intelligence is foundational to selfhood and species. We emerge with an innate capacity for language acquisition, which is first teased into function by low-frequency vibrations transmitted amniotically. Some is speech, some is music, some is our mother's beating heart. We discovered patterns, cadences, timing, and rhythmicity, warmth, and communing while we evolve slumberously, preconsciously, floating in a warm and loving sea. We emerge speechless, crude utterances of undifferentiated discomfort, perhaps hungered, perhaps newly discovered autonomic sensations that bewilder and bemuse. Perhaps also the joy of a warm touch and a smile were the soothing sonnets of maternal speech spoken in high tones with a musicality that separates mother from mere gestation. Language acquisition happens effortlessly, but socially, as those around us chatter incomprehensibly with sounds that have meanings we cannot discover alone. It is love that teaches us language, the love of our parents, our desire to enter a world they inhabit, waiting for us to join them. We unify, expand, adapt, influence. We learn our history and imagine our future. In this way, language captures and transforms time itself, extending self into culture without temporal constraints as collective histories transmitted orally expand selfhood into civilization far beyond the enucleated walls of the family. With words, we become super-organismic. Linguistic intelligence is both self and society. Using it allows near-instantaneous estimation of the verbal acuity of another, and in so doing, it does something more. It stratifies. Here, language differentiates, becomes a tool of divisiveness, tribalism, judgment, and damnation. The most insidious form of social stratigraphy is intellectual class signified by vocabulary. As language is the most universal and immediate tool of abstraction, we can know immediately the strength of the mind behind any gaze and the lesser quickly become chattel. What then is language? Language is equivalent to the body as an immediate tool. Language takes us from the universal to the specificity, and the greater the specificity, the more technical the individual. A collection of technical individuals is a society, and a society is a technium. Here we see the interconvertibility the isomorphism of language, tools, and man. While it may be tempting to conceive of linguistic intelligence as in Gaussian terms, with technical complexity at the far right, there is something more. Adaptability, specifically to gradations of interlocutors. As a social species, the greater the number with which one can communicate, the greater the world to which you can belong, the more influence you can have, and the more by whom you can be beloved. At the apex of human expression, the linguistic genius approaching the maximum capability to wield the most essential human tool finds the imaginal as his only companion and paradoxically he is exiled. The linguistic genius must beware the Icarian impulse. Speak then to many, to multitudes, in their language. The genius of speech, available to all, is the genius of humankind. Adaptation. Comma, communion, comma, love. <laughs> And so, so anyway, in a lot of ways, and this actually comes out of a conversation with my girlfriend, because I was like, well, it's really about there's complexity and there's levels of things that people can never achieve. And so when you think about intelligence, it's always going to be the most technical thing that shows you what your short term memory is capable of holding in tension while you manipulate it and so forth that results in the most complex tools. And she was like, but no, nah. you, you fucking idiot. It's really about communication. You need to realize that that's what it's for. And if you're doing all this other acrobatic bullshit, you're failing to communicate. And so it took me a while to come to that because I was like, no, no, this is just some dumbass bullshit. This is this social bullshit. No. But I always come back to this argument. We are ultimately social. And so no individual, no matter how brilliant, is anything at all 
without a collective. So I kind of arrived at the same conclusion as you did, Natasha, strangely enough, even though I did not begin there. I did not begin. Yeah, there. it took a sharp turn at the end there. I did not expect it to go there, so. <laughs> God, um, there was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot going on. I feel like uh, I don't want this to be an insult, but I feel like you use big words and they're not needed necessarily. Does that make sense? Um, I like it. It's like colorful and makes the reading experience better and stuff. But this is something it's just it, it. I've noticed specifically with people who learn American, they often will speak more elegantly than I will. They'll choose the big words that they learned in a class where they said, oh, this is a better alternative and stuff. And I mean, you're writing, so it makes sense. It's not like a roast or anything. I, I like how you're talking about like the kind of as like a society, as a species and stuff like communication is huge. And, and I really like how you said how gives you more audience you can be beloved by more people and stuff because i see that in my application of learning different languages and that's exactly what it is i mean now that i'm learning hindi i've got like hundreds of millions of indians hundreds of millions of pakistani people who can now you know support me and understand me and right. and love me or whatever they want but yeah um i thought it was cool though good work <laughs> well, I would say just really quickly, I have a little note that I wanted to talk about with language density specifically, but I think I can explore that after Natasha says whatever she says. Yeah, I think so, because that's exactly what I'm going to talk about, too. The funny thing to me, I already know how you write, because we wrote a story for the Future of Life Institute Yeah. for our world building contest. We both wrote stories that would depict what the world would look like in 2045. Mm -hmm. And I told him, motherfucker, you can't, this is prose. You can't write it all like, it was beyond. And I made him edit it a little bit, but this <laughs> is how, <laughs> I was like, bro, like, why do you write lists? Like, you don't like the word and, you know, we unify, expand, adapt, influence. It's like, I like the poetry, the cadence, the rhythm of your language, but you nailed it with the Gaussian idea that you're not reaching nobody, motherfucker. I think that. It's interesting because you talked about how having the technical ability you would think would be like the ultimate intelligence, but I think the ability to pull back, to be able to do that, to be able to communicate in that way and holding back is the true sign of verbal intelligence because you recognize unless your goal is to create some elaborate long-term mystery that people will study in a very Heraclitean did you, did you say clit? I'm I said sure Heraclitian. Yeah, what's the word? Um, what's the word like clit or, making, I just want to know that. Make, making up words is that's not week, good. That's week three. Yeah. <laughs> you only learn that when the door closes. Yeah. Like, I think about, like, Heraclitus because you talk about obscurantism a lot, and nobody knows what that motherfucker was talking about, but they're like, damn, that shit, some of that shit's real profound. But it'll go on and on and on, and I think it has the potential to to linger long term. Whereas clear stuff, like look at Hemingway. Hemingway was loved and appreciated in his own time. So I think the the more clear you can be, the more you can be addressing people in your own time. I don't know. Hmm. That's it. Well, I agree with the sentiment of what you're saying. At the same time, I would say that... Even for me, if you look at some of the words that are in there, though they are large, huge, like my thick corpus callosum, this is what's actually going on with the words. You can tell the thickness of the corpus callosum by the thickness of the language. But this is a reference to a, a previous discussion. I still understand yeah, yeah. that. See, he gets it. So the point is that 
I think of words like someone who might study some math and you get to a point where you're looking at calculus and you get to the point of looking at tensor calculus. There's ways of expressing things that are like condensates of operators and so forth that are really dense. Here's a symbol. This symbol okay, means- you're talking about speak speak English right now. Right, what are condensates oh, of, of operators? Oh, I don't oh, fucking okay, so, know. I didn't study tensor calculus. So, you, uh, my, I guess my point about this whole thing is that a larger or at least more complex word, and by complex, meaning it points to something that itself is more complex, even if the word is more simple. So it's really about the complexity of the idea. The arrangement of those things allows you to take what needs to be a 500-word thing and say a 1,000 words worth of stuff, but I've said it in 500 words. So for me to have to take one word and then to add a description to that word that takes three or four words, it actually dilutes the impact of the speech. So I think that there's probably some threshold of dilution of the complex words that disallows you to communicate complex ideas. And then there's probably some threshold beyond which you're, you're masturbating, which is at least half of what I did. I don't normally do that in public, but for a quarter, you can see me at the local shop. <laughs> so I guess my point is there are ideas whose complexity are such that you're not going to talk about them like you would to a child and get them across to adults in the way that you need to. And there are ways that you can communicate that will be so difficult that even someone who's maybe in grad school is going to struggle to get it. And so you've got to navigate that, you know, those boundaries. That makes but, a lot of sense. But to, to what extent do you need to communicate? So, for example, like thinking about what you wrote, people who listen to the podcast have often said this about you, that they're like, Brett is talking about shit and I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. So they're going to have this document mm -hmm. and they're going to go back and like the technium and nobody right. knows the technium because, I mean, almost nobody so, knows, but you and I know the technium because right. we've been talking about this for a while. The point is that people will be able to come back to this, but will they? Did you hook them enough for them to want to understand how your brain works? Because what happens is, I understand what you're saying about like needing to communicate complex ideas to people, but most people don't need that level of communication. Most people don't want it. Most people will tune that level of communication out. So... You may be spewing out these words, but your audience is diluting, hmm. you know, because they're like turning away and they're uninterested because you've lost them and they don't know what you're saying anymore. So you'll maybe get a few people who will go, huh, that's interesting. So the impact of what you say is then depleted. You know what I'm saying? It's like, what's the point of communicating if you're not communicating to anyone? I'm going to nudge back on that a, a wee little tiny bit and just say that when I hear someone say something that I don't know, as a curious person who cannot help but want to know, I'm going to find out. And the act of exploring what that thing was and trying to see why that made sense to the person who said it also makes me more invested in what it is that I did learn because now I've actually learned something. Somebody taught me something that was unexpected. And so I can see that going both ways. But that's you. You seem like an inquisitive like person who's interested in that type of thing. Yeah. You know, I think most people like just might not care you know you might be right you might be right so in the same way though when i'm listening or reading a topic that i care about yeah if i see a word i don't know or some concept that i don't understand yeah i will dive more into it which might make me more interested in the original author but there's definitely times where i'm like i don't care about this and then i'm gone if i'm lost yeah yeah that is the risk of doing something well maybe unique or experimental or something of that sort is that you're not going to please everybody. And then you have to ask yourself, well, who do you want to understand you? And some of that is 
other curious people who want to learn something different about the world and maybe a novel way of looking at something. That is true. You know, so, well, so I I'm mean, not it, looking to communicate, you know, to the, to the guy down the street who cares little at all about the spoken word and demonstrates it repeatedly with his lack of vocabulary. I'm going to go, okay, you're not my audience. Yeah. But I don't think anyone's tuning into this show going, I hope I'm not going to hear anything novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we've developed an audience and actually, you know, we got our Spotify roundup or whatever. And I was looking at all of the types of listeners on Spotify and our type of listener is a super fan. Like they really connect with what we do. And I think what we do is super broad and super deep as well, which nobody does. If you go broad, you go shallow. If you go mm -hmm. deep, you stay narrow. And I think the range of shit we cover, like you said, is a very special individual little, you know, cuckoo. But look, you have millions of people that love what you do because you're sh slaps. Thank you. You know, <laughs> it doesn't place its hand upon the bottom of other people. It slaps. It fucking slaps. You know what I mean? Like, I, I definitely yeah. do have to think all the time, though, about kind of what we've been talking about, about what my audience is and what I can say and actually have people understand, especially in like a, a TikTok where maybe I only have 30 seconds and I'm pretty good at making like viral language related TikToks. But I have to be very careful, like every second counts for, for that type of attention span of the average TikTok user. I really have to make sure that every word is understandable by the majority of people who could stumble upon the video, which is an, a unique challenge. Yeah. Your TikToks are great. I didn't know you were on TikTok until like this morning and I was kind of scrolling through. And I love the mockery you make of TikTok itself because I feel like I watched it pretty straight faced. There was a couple where I laughed yeah. because I was just like looking at this going like, these people don't even know he making fun of them. Because a lot of people who want to learn shit and they go to TikTok to learn it, it is so superficial. And you just say outright, like, you know, fucking wrong things or just shit that makes no sense. <laughs> and it's fucking hilarious because people are primed to receive that kind of content, but they're not primed for it to be utter bullshit. It at least has some semblance of truth. There's bullshit. one in particular on the top three easiest languages to learn in the world, which just went so viral on, well, it went more viral on YouTube. Maybe it has like 20 million views or something on YouTube, which is insane. But it just says, you know, hey, the three easiest languages are Russian, Arabic, and Chinese. And and I give like somewhat reasonable reasons, you know, like they're not impossible to believe type thing, but clearly they're wrong. And then you've yeah. got probably like 100,000 comments on the video yeah. of people telling I'm wrong. It's right. <laughs> yeah, you're an asshole. Yeah, that's exactly what I scrolled through because it was like one of your TikToks was like, look at this character. What do you think it means? And it was like, door, if you thought door, you're exactly right. You thought this was tree, you're right. You know, and I just thought it was funny because I looked in the comments and people are like, this guy's dumb or, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a secret sauce. I mean, look, even getting people to engage by wanting to argue and tell you how wrong you are is probably doing as much to expand your audience, if not more than than the fact of learning and appreciating language in the first place. It's this trolly, playful persona, I think, that people really want to see. Yeah, the genre's mm -hmm. been pretty stale for a while. I mean, there are definitely some YouTubers that I really love who just talk about their language learning experience and all that stuff. But it's stale in the sense of, you know, for years it's just been, hey guys, I'm learning this language. Let me go shock some people. Let me make an Omegle video shocking people. Let me tell you how I learned it. And that's kind of it. Or people teaching a language, so definitely added right. something new. 
How many languages would you say you're at least conversational in? At least conversational in? My brand, as you know, I'm a hyper poly giga chat alpha male who speaks over 50 languages fluently. So <laughs> why is that not on your shirt? You should have that on your t-shirt. It is. There is a t-shirt, actually. Um, <laughs> okay, that's fair. I was looking at this idea of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, where we talk about whether or not the language that you speak itself colors the way that you perceive the world and then kind of directs cognition and so forth. There are arguments for and against that. And I wonder, as you learn more languages, do you feel that when you speak in any of them, that they somehow shift the way that you think in ways that you would say, okay, well, I wouldn't have had that perspective if it wasn't for the fact that I was using this particular language. Ooh, that is a tough one. Because I know a lot of people say that. It changes the way that you think, but I almost want to say it doesn't. I feel like the thing that comes to my mind the most is when you're saying things in Mexican, for example, and in Hindi, when you're saying, I like something, you're more saying, to me, like, to, like, to me, it brings me pleasure, which is a little different, but I wouldn't, but I don't think about it in that way. I still think that I'm saying the American sentence I like. That's so, interesting. Ah, so. well, okay. But then this brings up the idea of uh, being the communicator versus being the one who's being communicated to. So when people hear you speak in these other languages, I wonder if what you're saying is conveyed in the same way. Oh, definitely not. Like, I mean, when I have subtitles, of course, for people who don't understand the language, they're getting what I would have said in my native language. But I guarantee that, especially when I speak French, which is my best language, and I'm trying to be extra funny in it or saying dramatic things, I guarantee there's an aspect that, as a non-native speaker, I can't really understand exactly what I'm saying, even though I'm very fluent in it. Does that make sense? Like, there's still just undertones of communication and subtle things that I totally wouldn't be able to grasp. Then I think that supports the idea of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. So this hypothesis, I think most people wouldn't know because they're not fucking linguists, is the idea that speaking a certain language confines how you think. It's very controversial amongst the people who think we need to decolonize language. It's funny because like I've heard you speak Arabic and I love when you say <laughs> like, Assalamu alaikum. Like, and it just sounds like you're angry at people. Like the one video you did with the guy who you're like, I ran into his car and he's like trying to talk to you. You're like, Assalamu alaikum. You're like screaming it at him, right? But it kind of is shaping the conversational tone, at least to the people who understand Arabic and to the people who understand English and understand Assalamu alaikum. So this idea that language is shaped by culture and culture shapes language I don't see how these decolonizing people can argue that. I don't I think would... that I really understand. Can you explain that a little, what you mean by decolonizing language? Or... Yeah, so they're saying that the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is rooted in white supremacy, that only white supremacists think that what language you speak actually dictates how you think. So the argument that they used in this hypothesis was the Hopi Indian tribe, how the Hopi Indians don't really have words for future, past, present, everything is timeless. Versus in English, we don't really have a timeless tense of words. And so we don't think in timelessness, but the Hopi did. And this is why being on time is a version of white supremacy. Are you so, kidding me? <laughs> so, so the main argument is that looking at people, looking at their culture as kind of like confined 
and separate creates something like Orientalism, where you're kind of creating otherisms mm-hmm. in the world. And that's bad. But those same yeah, people would then argue that you shouldn't appropriate anything from these cultures because those things are uniquely those people. So it just seems to me that every one of these arguments devolves into a, an irresolvable paradox. Well, let's take the idea of African-American vernacular English. There are some people who think it should be made into its own language. And if you think that African-American vernacular English should be its own language, then that means that people should be allowed to learn it. That makes sense. No, I don't understand anything, to be honest. (laughs) Literally, all these stuff, all these theories, linguistics, I don't even know what the tenses of verbs are called in, like, any language. I literally, like, I don't want to say I hate it, because I don't hate it. Like, I'm interested in what you guys are saying. Whenever it's brought to me, it's interesting, but I never Mm -hmm. seek it. So I'm just having fun. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to talk about the ways in which, even though languages might have different ways of expressing ideas that we can't know as outsiders when we learn them secondhand, we seem to already have a lot of these concepts, whether they're in the language directly or not. I have this dictionary of obscure sorrows that I picked up. I was waiting for it to come out for years. And this guy basically took different roots of words from all kinds of languages and came up with ways of expressing emotions we all have, but just don't have a specific word for them. And there's like YouTube videos, like three minutes long of any one of them. It just seems to me that even if some language actually has a word for something or a way of describing something and another doesn't, there are universal things that even without the words we experience. For me, one of the brilliant things about the way that we use English here is that we'll grab any word and just say, okay, we're going to start using that now. The language itself is fluid. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you saying some languages have words to describe things that can't be described with a word in other languages. I've noticed that a lot. can't remember the exact word in French, but I know, I think it might be clapoti or something, but it means like the noise when a water drop like hits a body of water or something clap like that. Booty? Something. No, it's not, it's not clap booty. Clap booty? Oh, yeah. I know that. I know that song. So a quintessential example is, uh, is schadenfreude. It's something we use all the time. It's been incorporated so much that you would think of it as an English word, but it's not. There is a feeling associated with that. And... Now we have a way to express it. And all we did was say, you got it. We didn't. We need it. Here it is. So we're thieves and colonizers. But that's the nature of human existence. We take things from everywhere and this, we put it in a blender and we make new stuff. And then we share it with other people and they grab it and do something new with it. And then we go, oh, I didn't see that variation. Thank you very much. And so forth. And that's how we got where we are. That's like the old, you gotta crack a few eggs to make an omelet argument, huh? (laughs) And the omelet omelet. is something new. Yeah, I agree. And I think there are things that are shared amongst languages that... The concept of swearing, for example, we'll go back to that. It's shared amongst languages. Not all the words are the same that are transgressional, but the concept that there are transgressional words and what those sources for those words are is universal. Like... Human excrement, you know, that is one in every language. Except like for this catologists, I heard about them. They, they live somewhere remote. Um, well, but stat <laughs> is a scientific term, which is and co-opted into like a sexual term as well, right? It has, actually. And uh, you should definitely not check out my OnlyFans for that. Don't Google it. Don't Google it. Don't Google it. Um, but I was watching, what's that motherfucker's name? Uh, with the curly hair. He's from New York. Steven Pinker who's supposedly okay. a linguist. 
He viewed swearing in a very negative way. He had a book, it was called The Stuff of Thought, way back. And he said a lot of negative shit about swearing that it's meant to be abusive or cathartic. It's all these negative things. And I thought like today, swearing has very much been co-opted to be much more friendly and ephemeral and anti-establishment, I think. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I've noticed though throughout my time learning different languages that some languages aren't as happy to hear curse words as as others though, that is for sure. So it's definitely like, a spectrum. Which... But really Arabic is the big one that they, they don't like to hear mm. curse words, which I understand. And so I've actually dialed down a little bit with that stuff. And it's just really has to do with like the holiness of the language and the belief that it's, you know, fundamental to existence and whatnot. Right. So the fact that my Arabic friend taught me the word tapoon is not like a good thing, right? Well, you know I, don't, I mean, word? it depends who you're talking to and stuff, but there are just some people who get pretty mad at that. And same with Russian, I'd say, actually. And maybe a lot of that comes from stereotypes of like Russian cursing is just something like online Russian cursing, especially in like the online video game sphere. It's become quite a meme. So when people say it, it's not like if someone comes up and curses to a Frenchman in French and they have a thick accent and it's it's just funny to them. But if you do it in Russian, there's the sense of, oh, okay, like you learned how to say like you're hilarious. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me, I hate, I'm going to inject culture into this again, but it sounds to me that the more oppressive cultures don't like transgression. They're like, you know, in Saudi Arabia, they want to keep a tight lid on what is cool and what is not cool. I don't really know what I can say about that, honestly. I don't know much about yeah, Saudi Arabian good. culture or, or laws or anything like that. I mean, I've, there are people who have enjoyed me cursing in their language from every country. I'm just saying as a general rule of thumb, though, I've not that everyone gets more mad, but there is a subset of people who aren't present in other languages that do get mad. I don't know if the word uh, oppressive is exactly the way to, to look at those kinds of, let's say, languages and systems around them. So basically, there's a, there are ways in which customs and language communicate a kind of homogeneity and trust. And so respecting those boundaries actually demonstrates something about your dedication to your connection in that civilization. And so that isn't necessarily oppressive. In some ways, that can actually be liberating. And I think what's happening in the West, especially since we have become so multicultural, in part is that, again, when we talk about this, the idea of things dissolving, there's something about the dissolution of those bounds that has left us looking for something that is maybe more approximate to that. And it's almost like cursing. We think of it as transgressive, but in some ways it kind of isn't because cursing becomes a unifier. So the fact mm -hmm. that I can sit down with Natasha and say, you know, whatever the fuck I want to say means that she and I respect each other and we're kind of on the same level. If I go into a business meeting and I goof around with somebody, I can tell who's friendly with me based on whether or not I can say something that's a little bit strange. And so that even though we're being more open with the curse words, there still is something about the cohesion of the language and the way that we express those things. I mean, it was immediately evident from when I got on the podcast, actually. I mean, you guys are instantly, you know, using language that suggests that you aren't, you know, stick up your ass like podcast hosts who are going to be like incredibly technical and formal in a sense of where I really have to be careful with how I how I act. So that's a great example of that. Yeah. yeah. I, and I think you hit the nail on the head with what you're talking about. Like I use the word oppressive because I'm a woman. And if I went to Saudi Arabia, I wouldn't be allowed to drive and I wouldn't be allowed to do the things that I do in this current culture. So to me, 
that would be oppressive. I would be oppressed from my normal daily activities. But for them in that context, you know, it's just the rules, right? So I understand that. And I think this is where a lot of modern liberals and multiculturalists have a lot of trouble and they don't address this fact that if you enjoy multiculturalism, you have to allow certain civilizations to act the way they want to fucking act. Like we have to be respectful of the boundaries of each of them. And so the way, the deference that you pay to Arabic and to Russian and to their less leniency, I guess let's call it with swearing, is indicative that you are a true multiculturalist, that you're like, no, I respect everybody's shit. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, like Brazil, for example, I feel like when I say a curse word, it's instantly applauded, like everyone loves it. And it's hilarious. And if I say things about the politicians and whatnot, it's just all hilarity. No one even debates really about who's better or whatnot. But if I say it about like, even if I say a bad thing about Putin in Russian, like, we'll get people who are, like, severe discussions in the comments about everything. But some cultures, yeah, I could say whatever I want, some I can't. And I definitely am trying to respect that and have a sense of humor that, that applies to each culture. And I'm excited to learn that about Hindi right now. And it seems like Indians are just happy when I call people a motherfucker in their language to begin with. So it seems like the bar is kind of low. So I'm, I'm excited about that. There's tons of content to be made. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. For more resources, including show notes, bonus content, and behind-the-scenes footage, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter at theoryyang.io forward slash newsletter.